If no one sheds light on what is being done in the darkness, it will never stop. One in three girls and one in six boys are sexually abused and told to hush. Breaking the silence is the first step to healing. Healing is a lifelong journey. Find your voice. Your story matters. Pain put me into hiding. Purpose called me out. May the silence be broken. Thanks for listening to the One Voice Podcast. It's a safe place for conversation on relevant topics with real life stories to encourage and inspire you along life's journey of healing from sexual abuse. I'm Mary O'Brien and now Nicole Braddock Bromley. Well, I am really thrilled. We have a special guest today, Brenda Tracy. She is quite a voice out there, just in especially the sports community and just helping men to understand that they're a solution to sexual assault. And Brenda Tracy is a survivor as well and here to share her story, but also to just inspire us in ways that we can make change in this world because she is making some major changes out there. And, you know, I've been speaking for 16 years on the topic of sexual abuse and assault. And, you know, there's many times I'll be at a college and I hear Brenda Tracy's name come up as another activist who's out there doing similar things and maybe has been at the same school that I've been to. And so I've, I've always heard her name as being someone that's very respected and her voice is somewhat new to the activism world, but she is just blazing some trails. And so Brenda, thank you for taking time to be on our podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. And that was a very nice intro. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we were talking earlier about how, you know, sometimes in the activism world, there's quite a bit of competition and, you know, it's un- it's unfortunate, but from you, Brenda, I've just seen such a warmth and just a belief that we are all in this together. And, you know, our stories, they come from all different angles and different places. And I certainly have not gone through what you've gone through. Um, but I know that you are rooting for me and what I'm doing. And I feel that and I sense that just as I'm rooting for you. And, and so I'm just really grateful for activists and voices who are out there with that kind of heart behind their passion. Yeah, I'm I'm grateful for those too cuz you're right and we're definitely stronger together. Absolutely. I think it would be really powerful for our listeners to just hear a little bit of your background. I know that you are as Mary and I both are, survivor of child sexual abuse, but you're most known for what happened to you as a 24-year-old and I wondered if you could kind of share a little bit of your experience whatever you're comfortable with. For our, for our listeners, just to understand that maybe they're not alone. And I know that your story is hard to tell and it's hard to hear mm-hmm. and it's yeah. emotional. And so go as far as you want. Do whatever you feel comfortable. But I have a load of questions for you because I know this is the hard part. But what comes from this pain is absolutely amazing and so incredibly inspiring and i want to tap into your faith journey i want to talk about set the expectation the foundation that you've started and what you're doing but just let's let's go back to the beginning so yeah i refer to myself as a multiple i was abused uh, by a family member from the ages of two to five Mm -hmm. and then i was also raped by my babysitter's boyfriend when i was nine Mm -hmm. he was a, a high school high school, I believe a junior or a senior. Um, and then later in life, when I was 24, I was dating a college football player. Um, at that time, by that time, I was um, a single mom with two sons, very, very small children. I had gotten 
married, I'd gotten pregnant for with my first son when I was 18. I was a senior in high school um, and then married his father when I was 19. And we had another baby right after we got married. Okay. That relationship was full of domestic violence. Mm. Um, but I managed to get out of that relationship with my life and with my children. And then about a year uh, from separating from him, I started dating this football player. And my best friend was also dating a football player from Oregon State. And so um, on this one particular night, she said, you know, we go over to my boyfriend's apartment with me, his brother's in town visiting. And, you know, we don't, women don't go places alone. And I wasn't going to have her go to this apartment late at night by herself because there was the roommate was also a football player from Oregon State. And just a lot of guys were in and out of the apartment. So um, I said, yeah, I would go with her. I wasn't able to get a hold of my boyfriend that night. We didn't have cell phones back then, so I just left him a voicemail. Mm. Um, But when I got to the apartment, it was um, her boyfriend, Oregon State football player. The roommate was also on the team. His brother was in town from California. He was a five-star recruit getting ready to go to Cal. Um, He brought a friend with him from California. He was a junior college football player. And then just a little while after we got there, another Oregon State football player showed up, and he was best friends with my boyfriend. Mm. So that was everybody in the apartment. I was asked if I wanted a drink, and at first I said no. I didn't I didn't really drink. Um, I certainly never got drunk. I grew up in a home uh, with an alcoholic father, mm-hmm. and then most of the time when I would get um, – when my ex-husband would be violent with me is because he was drunk. Mm. Um, So you can't be in control of yourself and other people if you're drunk. Mm -hmm. So I said no. (laughs) And my friends and the people at the apartment were like, Brenda, you never drink with us. Come on, like just this one time have a drink. Because I was always the person at the club that never was drunk. (laughs) I was like, no, come on, you guys know I don't drink. And they're like, no, seriously, like you can stay here. You can crash on on the couch. Like, it's fine. Like, just have a drink. And I was like, so finally I was like, okay, fine, I'll have a drink. So mm-hmm. I had about four ounces of a mixed drink. It was 10 grand orange juice. I specifically remember the pea green Tupperware cup that came in and everything. I don't know why that's so vivid for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did drink about four ounces. And then I probably about 10, 15 minutes after drinking that, I felt kind of flush, kind of warm from the inside. I could feel my, my cheeks getting hot. And I remember I just kind of giggled, like, oh, my gosh, I'm already getting drunk off of this much alcohol. I'm mm-hmm. such a lightweight. And it was mm-hmm. kind of funny at first. Yeah. But then maybe another 10 minutes after that, I started to kind of feel sick. And uh, the room kind of started to move. And I was sitting on the um, on a couch on the wall. And across from me was my best friend and her boyfriend sitting on the other couch on the other wall directly across from me. And I remember looking over at them. And I remember looking directly at her boyfriend. And he looked at me. And I thought, I remember thinking, like, oh, my God, I think I'm going to pass out. And I, and I felt a little panicked at first. And then um, he looked directly at me. He stood up. He took my friend's hand and he walked her into the back bedroom of the apartment. Mm. So then um, I was then left in the living room with the other four men and I did pass out. I just laid my head back and I closed my eyes. Um, so the first time I came to some consciousness, what I really remember is I came to some consciousness and I couldn't move. So I couldn't, I couldn't move my arms or my legs. And I knew I was naked. I knew I was laying on the floor. Um, I could move my head. And when I looked around, all four men were around me. I was um, actively being assaulted, was unable to, you know, I remember feeling like I was trying to say, stop, what are you doing? Why can't I move? Um, But I don't know that I was able to say the words out loud. Mm -hmm. And I was trying so hard to stay awake um, because I felt like I wanted to pass out again. So I then um, 
drifted in and out of consciousness during my attack. And I know from the police reports and statements that my attack lasted for about six hours. And um, I know that, you know, around the six hour mark, the men started complaining that I was so, I was so dry and I was so swollen. They couldn't penetrate me anymore. Mm. And they were complaining about that. And so one of the men said, let's put ice on her. And they, um, they put ice on my vagina and when that didn't help with the swelling and they still couldn't, you know, rape me anymore. They stopped. And, um, you know, I tell the groups I talk to, I think that um, that's maybe the only reason that my attack stopped was just because they literally couldn't anymore. So the next morning when I became conscious again, I got up, I went to the back bedroom and I got my friend and I told her I wanted to leave and she pretty much came right out and I acted like everything was fine in the apartment. I acted like everything was fine. I didn't, I didn't cry. I didn't say anything. I, you know, just got my clothes on. And, but when we left and when I heard the door kind of click behind me, that was when I began to kind of panic and cry. And I think the first thing I said was what the hell just happened in there? Cause yeah. I was having a really hard time wrapping my brain around like sure. what just happened. What just, mm. And then I started to blame myself. That was the first thing I started to do. The first thing I said was I drank. Aww. Why did I drink? This is exactly why I don't drink. I didn't check my drink. I didn't make sure my boyfriend was with me. Did I flirt with one of them? Did I say something? I started thinking about the clothes I was wearing. It never occurred to me not one time that I didn't do anything wrong, that I'm allowed to exist, that I'm allowed to go to a friend's house. I'm allowed to have a drink. So we got into the car and I was pretty much inconsolable. I was in a crisis moment and uh, my friend reached out to me. She put her hand on my thigh and she said, Brenda, it's going to be okay. We just got in over our heads. Mm -hmm. And I knew in that moment that my friend knew what happened to me. She didn't help me. And so um, I kind of just looked at her with some shock and disbelief and a lot of pain. And it's really weird because kind of in that moment, it's just like, I don't know who you are. And I didn't speak to her and say anything to her. She just kind of became dead to me in that, in that very second that she said that to me. And I looked at her. and uh, But she mm -hmm. drove me home. I think that she must have called my mom. The next thing I really remember was, you know, I was laying on my couch in the fetal position and my mom was on the floor next to me and she was stroking my hair and trying to console me. And to her, I was saying, you know, mom, I don't, I'm sorry. I don't know what happened. I was, I drank. I shouldn't have drank. I know I shouldn't have drank. I, I don't know what happened. And she was talking about, to me about going to the hospital and I didn't want to go to the hospital. But, um, you know, in this moment, you have to think about real life stuff, right? Like, mm -hmm. I didn't know if I was pregnant. I didn't know if I had an STD. I didn't know if I had HIV. I knew that those men used a, a alcohol bomb on me. I knew that they used a flashlight on me, but I don't know what else they did to me because I was passed out for most of it. Mm -hmm. So when I thought about the health concerns, I thought I should go to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And on the way to the hospital, it kind of had this slow motion movie moment, <laughs> which is kind of, it was a little surreal, but I just kind of started thinking about my life in general. Yeah. And I kind of revisited my trauma. Yeah. And I just kind of thought like, why am I here? Like, if I'm only on this earth to be abused and beaten and raped and abandoned and hurt, like, mm. why am I even here? Like, what's the point? Mm -hmm. And I thought about suicide. And when I thought about suicide, I thought, okay, well, who, who will care if I die? And I thought about my parents and my mom was crying as she was, you know, driving me to the hospital. She was trying to be very strong for me, but she was sure. very broken and hurt. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I thought, they'll be fine. My dad has stopped drinking by this time. They were doing better. And then I thought about my sons, my, my babies. I and mean, they were little guys at this point. Yeah. 
And I thought, you know, they'll need me. By this time, their father had been in and out of jail, and then he ultimately ended up going to prison. So he was Mm. there for most of their lives growing up. And I thought, you know, my sons will need me. But then I also thought about the fact that someday my sons would be men, like they'd be young men. Mm -hmm. And when they found out what happened to me, how could my sons really ever love me or respect me? How could they ever not be ashamed of me? Mm. You know, when they found out that those men ran a a train on their mom. Mm. When I rationalized that I thought my sons would be better off with me, that was when I decided to kill myself. Mm. And I have to tell you that in that moment, you know, people who have gone through this, they understand the crazy making of suicide. And, you know, it all felt very good to me at the time. Um, It felt like, you know, not only was I not going to go through any more pain, but I wasn't going to cause anybody else any pain. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we talk about suicide like it's a selfish act. But in the moment, it doesn't feel selfish. It feels like you're doing the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. So I thought, okay, you know, I'm, but I'm on the way to the hospital. I can't do anything about it. So I thought, okay, I'll just go to the hospital, I'll get checked out. And when I go home, I will, I will die. Mm. But God usually has a different plan for your life than you, than you have. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I met my nurse at the hospital and her name was Jenny. And I thought that Jenny would do her job, but I thought it was going to be very awkward for me and her. Cause I knew I was going to have to tell her everything that happened to me. And so I wasn't looking forward to it. Um, but when I met Jenny, it wasn't awkward at all. There was mm-hmm. something just ethereal about her there was something comforting about her mm. she's a complete stranger That's but awesome. yeah i like felt safe with her mm-hmm. and so when she and she's first, the one doing we, your rape kit she's the one doing my yeah. rape kit yeah wow. it's like the most like the last thing you want to do i mean a rape yeah. kit is oh, yeah. hor- horrible was she a sane nurse so, she was a sane nurse yeah. yeah back then they called her a sexual assault response team nurse but yes she was a sane nurse yeah. she was specially trained to work with me mm. um and so i knew like you know i knew she'd do her job mm-hmm. but i figured there would be like this awkwardness like she'd probably think i was gross like you know i was going to tell her everything that these men did to me i thought she might blame me mm-hmm. all the, i think all of the fears that survivors have yeah. interacting with anybody they're all there um, and you're just waiting for someone to prove you're right but when they dispel just give it you that look yeah 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 and you're give like, that yeah. little look of like, ew, that's right. gross. Yeah. <laughs> and I and I was definitely expecting all of that. Yeah. Um, but Jenny, but was again, different. I was like, yes, she was. And so what happened was, um, she when we first kind of got there and to get started, I had my hospital gown on and I was sitting on the exam table. And this, um, I was in a room in the emergency department. Um, and she had left the room for a minute, and I sat on the table and I said out loud. God, why should I be here? Those exact words. Mm. Because I really, I wanted to know. (laughs) Yeah. And And you didn't have a relationship with God or Jesus or anything at this point, right? Not really. No. I mean, I knew there was a God. I'd kind of been in and out of an Episcopal church, but no, I didn't really have a relationship or anything. A generic kind of call out. Yeah. I mean, I was was going to kill myself. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. This is like the end of your, your darkest pit. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this was kind of like, I'm, I'm getting ready to kill myself. So if there's a God, yeah. you need to tell me why you want me to be here. Wow. And so I said, God, why should I be here? And mm-hmm. I felt like, I really felt like I heard him say, I want you to become a nurse and take care of your son. Yeah. And it, I knew that I'd heard from God, not a voice, but you know that, just Absolutely. that knowing in yeah. your heart. And so when Jenny came back into the room, I had no idea how to become a nurse. I had actually never once in my life, not even for a half a second, had ever thought about being a nurse. Mm. And so when she came back into the room, she would say things like, Brenda, we need to to do a vaginal exam or we need to pluck 
you know, head hairs or pubic hairs or whatever. Mm-hmm. And every time she'd ask me to do something, I would say, Jenny, how did you become a nurse? And she'd ask me to do something else. I'd say, Jenny, where'd you go to school? She asked me to do something else. And I'd say, what about financial aid? Mm-hmm. And we just ping-ponged back and forth for yeah. like, I think it was like four, four and a half hours. Wow. Um, until I knew everything I needed to do to become a nurse. And I started school I think it was about just about three months to almost the exact day of my rape kit. I started school. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went and I got my registered nursing license. I went on and got my bachelor's in nursing and science. And then went on and got my master's in business and healthcare management. Wow. And I still have my RN license today. I worked as a, as a practicing nurse for 14 years. Oh, wow. And I talk a lot about how I just tried to pay forward the gift that I felt like Jenny gave me. Mm, that's really um, cool. Because I think, I think that, we don't know what other people are going through. Mm-mm. And so it could be something that you do that could be so insignificant and so small, mm-hmm. just like just doing your job like Jenny was, That's but you could save a life yeah. or you could impact a life or change a life. Yeah. Yeah. It could be everything to that person. And so what happens in the world if everybody just walked around intentionally to just mm-hmm. be a good, just be a good person. You know, if somebody's like, if somebody snaps at you, don't snap back at them. Mm-hmm. You don't know what they're going through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, smile, open a door, random acts of kindness. You have no idea how far that could go. Jenny didn't, you know, she was just doing her job, but she literally saved my life. So after I was with Jenny, um, because I had a reason to live, I decided to go to the police and I, I reported what happened to me. Wow. All four men were arrested the next morning. I actually don't remember. I, I just kind of remember having a good experience with the police, which I know is not usual for other people, but I don't remember really having anything bad happen with my interaction with the police. Um, I cooperated. I, you know, picked them all out of like a school yearbook kind of thing and all that and pointed out the apartment and everything. So all four men were arrested. I kind of thought that's when the episode of Law and Order would start. I was very naive about the criminal justice system. And back then I had to tell you the truth back then I hadn't really heard of like how rape survivors are treated they weren't really in the news or anything so Mm. I just thought that I was a a regular crime victim and that victims go to the police they report the bad guy gets arrested you go to court I win they go to jail like I thought it was just very Mm. simple yeah well it should be yeah yeah like I thought I was just like any other crime victim um but then I found out that you know it became a news story immediately no social media, but, you know, the newspaper, sure. TV, yeah. um, radio. And because some of the players were going to Cal and Oregon State, um, you know, my community, like, immediately turned on me. They were like, who is she? Why is she lying? Why is she trying to ruin these young men's lives? Mm-hmm. What's in it for her? You know, what was she wearing? Why was she there? Right. She was drinking. You know, just all this mm-hmm. stuff. And I was like, what? I, I really didn't understand it because I was like, I'm the victim of a crime, but now I'm also a perpetrator. Mm. Like I'm intentionally in an evil, spiteful way trying to ruin somebody's life. Right. And I really didn't understand that. Um, I also started receiving death threats to, uh, from, from me and my children. There was a man who called our house a few times. And then, you know, my boyfriend, he didn't think his, so all four men were facing 20 years in prison. He didn't think his best friend and teammate should go to prison. And so he didn't want anything to do with the case. So he kind of turned on me. Um, my best friend, Carmen, this is about a week and a half into everything. I was not speaking to her because I knew she knew what happened to me. Mm-hmm. So I cut her out of my life. So she finally just showed up at my door at my house and I let her in and she said, are you going to prosecute? And I said, yes. And she said, well, if you go to court, I'll testify against you. Wow. So everyone turned on me. Mm. I had no one but my parents and my children. 
And I was still going to prosecute, but then the DA told me I didn't have a good case. The DA said I have to go through four separate trials. Mm. Um, it could take years. My rape kit would be made public, which meant all the pictures of my body. And I probably wouldn't win. And so the DA said, are you sure you want to do this? And I said, well, no, if I can't win, what's the point? Mm, so I like dropped a little, the charges. little sketchy setup there. Yeah. So I dropped the charges and that was a news story, of course. And then everybody was like, oh, see, we told you she's a liar because if she was really raped, she would she would press charges or yeah. she would, you know, go to court. Mm-hmm. And the other mis- and the other thing, too, is that people talk about like I drop, and I even say it myself. and I need to stop saying that I say that I drop the charges, but really the state brings charges. The state drops mm-hmm. charges. That's mm-hmm. not in the survivor's decision process. Right, right. So it bothers me when people say like, oh, the victim drop the charges and the victim, you know, no, that's the state. Mm. Um, but yeah. anyway, language um, is important here. Yes, mm. it is. People put a lot of responsibility on us and it's not mm. our responsibility. Yeah. Um, so then I thought, I kind of thought I was just going to go to school and kind of move on with my life from there. But then another story was going to come out from the football team. Cause my rape happened right before the season. And when the head coach, Mike Riley, was interviewed about what was going on, his comment was, these are good guys that just made a bad choice. Mm. And he gave him a one-game suspension from the season. Mm. And I read that as Jane Doe. Um, of course, I didn't put my name on my face on. I didn't want anybody else to know it was me. I was already dealing with enough. But I read that, and I was really angry because I think we assume yeah. that all coaches are good men of good character, building good men of good character. Mm-hmm. And to minimize my life to just a bad choice was extremely hurtful yeah. and offensive to me and gang rape i was angry is about that a bad choice it's yeah gang rape is not a bad choice it's like getting a speeding evil, ticket is a bad actually. choice actually it's a crime yeah right like let's get the word yeah. right here yeah and then a one game suspension i felt like that that, that was a value on my life yeah, in my experience slap on the wrist. absolutely yeah yeah mm-hmm. and so i was angry about that but i, I didn't have a voice that can say anything mm-hmm. so you know i just thought you know my mom used to tell me time heals all wounds I know a lot of people hear that Mm -hmm. and I thought, okay, I'll just give it time. Um, And so the next 16 years, I just gave it time. I went to, I went to school. um, I, you know, had a job. I did really well. I started, but I started living a double life like most survivors. So Mm. on the outside, it looked great. I got all these degrees. I had a great job. I bought a house. I had two cars and a dog and my kids looked great. Mm -hmm. Um, But on the other side, you know, I was suffering. Depression. I had what I call a borderline eating disorder. I couldn't decide if I wanted to be anorexic or bulimic. And um, I, you know, depression. Mm -hmm. I was suicidal, but I I couldn't kill myself because at this point I knew I had to stay alive for my kids. Um, But then as a parent, I also, looking back, know that I resented my sons because I felt like they were the reason I had to live. Yeah. So I was in that resentment kind of looked like me not being a great parent. So Mm. I didn't hit my children, but I yelled a lot. I wasn't present. I was easily aggravated, frustrated with them, Mm. you know, and, and not only that, but like, you know, the public face looked great. I showed up to everything. We did everything. We looked like a great family, but at home, that was not what we were living. Um, so a lot, a lot of issues, a lot of problems mm. um, in those 16 years. And then in 2014, when I turned 40, I just kind of thought, is this what you're going to do for like the next 40 years of your life? Because yeah. I just assumed I'd live it till it be at least 80. You know, am I going to live a double life and just kind of wake up every day wanting to die? Like, is this what, is this what life is going to be? Mm. And so I started to go to counseling and we didn't talk about any of my sexual trauma for like six months. <laughs> we talked about everything but Just dancing my around trauma. the real issue. Sure, yeah. that's what we, we do. Talked, we talked about everything but that. 
<laughs> and then I think we got like two sessions in where we actually talked about Corvallis and what happened at Oregon State. Oh. Um, and then my, so during one of those sessions, I had actually called the school. I wanted to find out what happened with those men. And the school got very defensive. And they're like, why do you want this information? Are you planning to litigate? And I was like, no, I'm just like, I'm in therapy. Like, I just yeah. trying to own yeah. my story. Hmm. And so I had about two sessions talking about Corvallis. And then my therapist got sick and she left her practice. So I kind of had mm. felt like I opened Pandora's box Ugh. finally. And yeah. then I hit like these dead ends and my, my therapist left. And mm. you know, it's not like you can just go to a new therapist. I spent six months building trust with her to even right. talk about yeah. my trauma. And mm. so um, I kind of hit a dead end. And so I was trying to figure out how to recover. So I thought about Coach Riley. He was actually, coincidentally, um, well, I'm sure it's God, but he was the coach again in 2014. He had left after my gang rape and then was back. So he was just mm. down the the, high, the freeway from me. Oh, wow. And um, mm. I'd always hated him. And so I thought, well, maybe I could talk to him. Maybe I could find some sort of closure or healing through him. Wow. So I started That's kind of Googling brave. him, trying to figure out what kind of guy he was. I, wanted to, I decided I was going to write him a letter because mm. that was less scary. Um, but I wanted him to not be defensive. I wanted him to understand how he had affected my life. I, you know, I was really wanting healing. This wasn't just about being mad. This was about, I want healing and I want closure. Mm -hmm. Um, so I started Googling him and just found decades of articles about how great he is. And that was irritating to me. Um, (laughs) but I finally found one, I finally found one from 2011 that he had given a player one game suspension for domestic violence, uh, conviction. Mm -hmm. And I hit the reporter's name and I said, see, uh, coach Riley is not a great guy. This is what happened to me. And I just kind of vented in the email I sent it. I wasn't expecting a response, but that reporter responded to me and said, I'm proud of you. Do you want to talk? And I said, yeah, I do. And then I didn't know who I was talking to. Um, so I Googled the reporter mm-hmm. and it actually ended up being the lead sports writer at our major paper here in Oregon, the Oregonian. Mm-hmm. So I got scared, but I met him and told him what I knew about my story. And he said, you know, I'll, if you want to meet coach Riley, I'll set that meeting up for you. I want you to heal. But if you want to share your story, I'll write it. Cause I think you could help somebody. Mm. And at the time I said to him, what story, who cares? Nobody cares. Then why would they care now? Like, mm. seriously, what are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. he's like, no, you re-, he's like trying to convince me. He's like, Brenda, you really have a story. You could help someone. And I was like, well, fine, whatever. Like just put my name and my face on it then. And you know, people romanticize my story a little bit and they think that, you know, I was ready to come forward and I've done all this counseling and I made this intentional decision to help other people. But that's not what happened in that moment. In that moment, when I decided to put my name on the face of my story, it was a moment of desperation. I had just, you know, lived 16 years of waking up every day wanting to die. Yeah. And I was very broken. And I just thought, maybe if I put my name and my face on this, maybe something will change. Maybe that story will run and the next day will be the first day in 16 years that I wake up and I don't want to die. It was, I didn't, I didn't do it to help anybody but myself. It was all selfishly motivated. I just wanted something different Mm. and that was why I did it. And so the story ran in November, 2014. This time my community didn't turn on me. This time people believed me. They loved on me. The university president of Oregon state, not the president back then, but he issued a public apology to me. To my understanding, at that point, I was the only survivor in college history to ever receive a public apology from a university president. Wow. Uh, Coach Mike Riley. I know. That's really significant. I don't know if people really understand how significant that is because there's many of us that deserve an apology. Yeah. And that can be healing. That can be a big piece of healing if you can get that. 
Well, when we talk about institutional betrayal versus institutional courage, mm-hmm. it's a big deal. Yeah. And, we, and we speak about the outcomes for mm-hmm. survivors given which one you're experiencing. And I've experienced yeah. both. So yeah. it, it's huge. It's a big deal. It Coach Mike Riley hit the comment section of my story. Um, obviously, these guys, you know, they were doing everything without, you know, doing what general counsel was telling them to do. But Coach Mike Riley hit the comment section of my story and also apologized, said he would like to meet me. And if I wanted to speak to his Beaver football team, he would love to make that happen. Mm. So, again, I think I was the second person to receive something like that in college football history. So an investigation was done by my reporter and the school. And so what happened was back then, Oregon State Athletic Department was about a million dollars in debt. The football stadium was called Parker Stadium. And they were trying to um, raise millions of dollars to renovate the football stadium. And rape scandals don't help with money donations. So back then, the the president, the university president, the police and the DA used to get together and talk about how to take care of sports and football. And so what really happened back then was the DA told me I didn't have a good case. But the DA had tape confessions from all four men that they did not tell me about. Wow. Um, my rape kit was not tested. It was thrown in the trash three years before the six-year statute of limitations was up. Mm. Um, and the university president told everybody, don't talk about Brenda, and nobody did. And I should oh. say, too, actually, I forgot to say that oh. I actually went to Oregon State. I wasn't a student there, did but you? I actually went there and reported oh. after my rape. I, after the, we, after the wow. state dropped the charges, I went to the school and reported because I wanted to make sure they knew a rape, rapist were on their campus. Yeah. I didn't want it to happen to anyone else. So that sexual assault counselor had actually gone to, I don't remember if it was the DA or the police office, but she got the police report and took it to the school. So wow. they had it. They had the police report. Mm. So all of this happened. I didn't know any of this happened, but it worked because one year later, the Reeser family wrote Oregon State a $5 million check and Parker Stadium was renovated and renamed to Reeser Stadium. And that's the stadium that's there today. Wow. Um, so I'm, acute, I'm acutely aware that that stadium was built off of my back, my pain, my children's pain. You know, I have a, a price tag on my head and it's $5 million. You know, since getting that information in Dece- December 2014, I've, I've, I've struggled with what does that mean? What does mm-hmm. that mean about my worth as a human? What does that mean about my value to society? What does that mean? You know, mm-hmm. humanity? You know, the fact that I, I very well could have died. My sons could have ended up without a mother or a father Absolutely. because of a football stadium. Absolutely. You know, not, not figuratively. I, I'm speaking literally. This is real. Um, yeah. Yeah. So what I did after I found out all this information, I was I was very angry. Um, I went to a civil attorney and I said, you know, what can I do and who can I sue? I was I was ready to sue. I was angry. Mm-hmm. And they told me they sat me down and the civil attorneys told me I couldn't do anything. So I uh, DAs have immunity in this country. They get to pick and choose their cases. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no laws about rape kits in Oregon. So technically the police didn't do anything wrong. And I wasn't a student at Oregon State, so title like all the Title IX Cleary stuff oh, didn't apply to me. Okay. So there was nothing I could do. There's no one I could sue. But then my lawyers said, you know, if you wanted to change a law, we could do that. So that was the first thing I did was I started changing laws. So I've been to four sessions in Oregon. I've helped uh, pass eight laws, actually. I just passed my eighth, actually. Amazing. So wow. extending... Extending the statute of limitations to prosecute, mm-hmm. uh, we, I helped um, uh, discover over 5,000 untested rape kits in my state um, and created a, a law where mandatory testing has to happen. You can't throw evidence away. Mm. Um, some campus bills. Just my last law that I helped with was to extend the civil statute of limitations. Uh, it was two years. It's now um, five. 
in our state. And then five years from the time you discover something happens. So if you discover something later in life, you have five years to bring a civil case. Um, So just anything I can do to try Mm -hmm. to close all the loopholes that, you know, all the cracks I was pushed through. I don't say fell through because I was pushed. Um, (laughs) And then my speaking career, working with teams and stuff, um, Coach Riley left Oregon State and I didn't meet him, but he went to Nebraska and I didn't think he would reach out to me again. That was kind of a PR nightmare for him in the, in the media. I was just saying how much I hated him. Um, but he reached out to me from Nebraska and, and said, you know, I'd still like to meet you. Wow. You know, and if you want to talk to my team, I think that'd be amazing. And so hmm. I went there in the summer of 2016 and I met him, sat down with him about an hour and a half, told him how much I hated him. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't leave anything off the table, said everything. <laughs> Coach Riley, apolog- not only did he apologize, but he held himself accountable to me, which I think is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't say, I'm sorry, but he said, I'm sorry, period, which mm-hmm. are two different things. Absolutely. And, um, that was an amazing moment for me, for my healing and my sure. journey. And then yeah. I went into the team room and I talked to his Huskers. And that was my very first football team I ever worked with. 120 guys mm. stood in front of him. And Riley told them my story. Yeah. And then that story went viral. Yes. And I've been to like 90 programs now, That's 35 great. Power Fives. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. It's been yeah. a crazy journey. It's and sure. that was my, I intended to be a, <laughs> tell you a short version of my story, but that's my <laughs> Sorry. Oh, Sorry. It's amazing. I mean, it's it is. like every emotion possible right there. Yeah. And Ooh. your story, it really does. It breaks my heart every time. And I'm so sorry for what you went through. You didn't deserve it. You never could have asked for that. Thank you. Yeah. And I know that, you know, the healing journey is lifelong and we can be out there with some of the loudest voices on this topic. But meanwhile, we're still struggling. We're still picking up the pieces and trying to put it back together and, you know, leaning on best friends, going to our counselor, crying when no one's around. And and that's just real life. And it's good to be real about that. I'm glad that you can be. Um, But just so you know, like, we really believe in you. We support you. We're here for you. And we're grateful for your journey, you know, thus far and, and where it's going from here. Yeah. And, you know, as I think about your story and, and, and how it's just been since 2016 that you, you know, were kind of thrown into this activism world and yeah, the public, like the really the public eyes. Yeah. Yeah. And like, (laughs) that's just three years of being a very loud voice and for all of us survivors, but you've also been healing at the same time in front of all of us. Like, what's that been like for you? How do you care for yourself with all of this? So you don't burn out. Yeah, I I literally had like, you know, zero days of healing when I came forward with my yeah. story. So I, I have literally been healing in real time in the media because yeah. I would say, you know, I've probably been in the media in some sort of a story since I came forward in 2014, probably at least once a month. Yeah. So I've, yeah. I've just maintained this presence in right. the public eye, right. you know, for these few years I've been doing this. And so mm. it's not easy. No. Um, I'll tell you that it's not easy. It's it's weird when there comes a point when like you tweet something and it becomes an article. Um, And so you know that people are watching, people are paying attention, Uh everything you say matters, um, you know, that kind of thing. So there's some privacy that's gone. Um, You know, people are digging into your life and all these things. So Mm. it's been difficult, but at the same time, I also feel like one of the things that I think God has asked me to do is do this in real time in the public mm-hmm. where people can see me yeah. because I think that there's something about survivors understanding 
that like I'm like her and she's like me. Yes. Because we don't necessarily see a lot of people healing in real time in the public. Right. We don't know what it looks like. And sometimes we see survivors mm-hmm. and they look really polished and they look really good because, you know, and then in the public eye and it's yeah. like, how did she get there? Yeah. Or how did he get there? Uh-huh. How did they get there? And I think it's the journey of how did you get there that people really want to know. And so I hope that I can show that, that, you know, it's okay to cry. It's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to not know everything. It's okay to learn. It's, you know, all of these things that I'm going through, Yes. I just want survivors to see like, this is real mm-hmm. life. And if, and I, if I'm doing it, you can do it too. Yeah. No, I think that's good. The real time thing, I think really hits me for you because, you know, especially I think in the, in the Christian world, we, we can look up to these certain like people with platforms and celebrities and even those who are survivors and think, you know, they're so polished and how do they get there? And I just want to have this, this perfect package one day. And it, and it feels good to look at that and think that that's attainable, but I'm with you. I think it's better to be down on the ground in the dirt with people and to show, you know, your humanity. And so that when, when others who are behind us on their journey, you know, have something come up in their lives, super triggering or, you know, something in life just brings them down and, and they're they're at a stopping point or maybe, you know, they are having these secret suicidal thoughts and they, they feel like, well, I'll never be that big polished person. They can look at somebody like you, Brenda, or, um, you know, just think about those who, who are still battling and, and, and doing things afraid. You know, I think that there's more power yes. in that than being, putting out your best every day. <laughs> I, I think, it, and especially, age of social media, right? Like Mm. there's so many people who are living double lives. And I think that's one of the things too, that God has asked me to do is not live a double life. Mm -hmm. So the person you hear right now, the person that you would see if you came to my house, had lunch with me, saw on the stage, that's one person. I I hate the idea of like people talk about, oh, you got to build your brand. No, I don't. I'm a person. I'm not a brand. Uh I'm a person. And this is who I am 24 seven. And I don't want to live a double life anymore. I did that. I don't want to do that anymore. I just mm-hmm. want to be who I am. And you like it or you don't, but mm-hmm. this is who I am. Mm-hmm. I'm full of trauma. Mm-hmm. It's going to take me years to untangle everything. I'm going at it at my pace. Mm-hmm. I'm doing what I can. And that's good enough. That's so good. You're setting the expectation for your own journey. I think that's awesome. <laughs> I really, I really am trying. I really am trying. And I think that, you know, I don't know. I think people, it just resonates with people. And I think that's where my... I don't know if you want to call it popularity or whatever it is, but I think that it just resonates. Like you can just tell a person who is really just trying to be their, their most honest self with with another person. Like you, you just feel it. There's some sort of energy that creates a common ground. And I think it allows people to feel welcome in your presence and to be real themselves. It gives other people permission. I know Mary, you talk about this a lot, giving other people permission to have their story and to talk yes. about the hard things and don't just don't just show up with the pretty parts of your story. Let's talk about all mm-hmm. of it. So that's really great. Yeah, let's be real because that's what people are really going through. And that's <laughs> yeah. what they really need to know. How did you Absolutely. get through that? Yeah. How did you do that? And that's why I tell people when people say like, you know, how did you find the strength to come forward with your story? And I'm like, I didn't. <laughs> I was desperate. Yeah. That was a strength. <laughs> that was me, you know, and it's okay that I it's okay that I didn't want to help people in that moment. Yeah. It's okay that I just wanted to help. And it's okay for survivors to just want to help themselves too. I think that, sure. you know, sometimes people, I ask, you know, survivors a lot of times will, um, you know, come to me and say like, you know, I'm thinking about going public. Cause I work with a lot of survivors of athletes. Mm. So that's a very daunting question. Yeah. I want to go public. Yes. And that's scary. 
Um, yeah. And so I'll ask them, like, why do you want to go public? Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of times they'll say to me, because, because I think it sounds good and it's what people want to hear, I want to help other people. Yeah. And I'll say to them, it's not a good reason. You're not going to be able to withstand the backlash if you're only doing it for someone else. This yeah. has to be about you and what you need to do for you. Now, obviously, Preach. my intention is now to help people. Um, and so your why can mm-hmm. change. Mm-hmm. But in the beginning... And, and actually throughout the journey, it's really got to be about you. It's about the survivor. Mm-hmm. It's okay to be selfish. You're of no help to anyone else if you can't help yourself first. Right. Yeah. I can help people because I'm working on my own trauma. I'm healing myself. I'm doing these things. And so now when I say something to you, mm-hmm. it's because I've, I'm already going through it or I've gone through it or I've done it. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of thing. There's no, you know, if you put a bow on it and you spray some Febreze on it, that trauma's still there. Yeah. <laughs> You're not going to help yourself or anyone else. <laughs> yeah. It's like those cars that have like 20 yes, those trees hanging from oh. the rear view. Yeah. It's like, Air fresheners. No, we know what's going on inside of that car. <laughs> yeah, that trauma is still there. Yeah. And, and we all know like trauma doesn't just go away. Mm. You've got to deal with it. you got to face it. you got to go through it. It yeah. doesn't just go away. Time does not heal all wounds. And you're no help to nobody that. else if you're not working on you. That's so good. You can't. Yeah. And if you want to help someone else, you help yourself. That's how you do that. That's you know, how you Brenda, help other I'm thinking, too, yourself. about how you have so much wisdom and you're really good, I think, from my public perception of you. You're really good with, like, boundaries with people because I'll tell you one thing. In all of my 16 years of advocating being a voice and all of that, I can't imagine getting the amount of hate mail that you get. It is insane. (laughs) And I think part of what's kept me, it's crazy. Part of what's kept me in the game and out there is I feel a lot of support from people. Yeah. And when I get yeah. like a negative review on Amazon, oof, it goes, it's all over me and for days. But I see what yeah. happens on Twitter from these, you know, sports fans okay. that are, yes, behind their team. Yeah, and it's horrible. And Mary and I, you know, we're calling you from Buckeye Nation. And, um, you know, we I can be in conversation with, you know, major Buckeye fans, football players or whatever, and they can be advocates for women and women's rights and, you know, speaking up for their sisters, but you better not cross their team because then all of a sudden yeah, yeah, don't becomes, talk about their coach or their team. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. And so so then we'll, yeah. we'll get into that conversation. And I'm like, wait, weren't you just saying this the other day about women or the Me Too movement? And I was like, you were all for what I was doing. But now all of a sudden we're talking about your team and now everything's different. Why? I so I get where that's coming from and and why you're getting that, but I can't stand it. I'll tell you, I sit there and I look at your feed sometimes, and one, I admire you so much because you don't back down. I would be in a corner. (laughs) Two, I want to fight everybody. (laughs) I want to protect you, and then I also just want to like rescue you. But you are just out there, and I don't know how you do that. How do you deal with that? So here's the thing. It's ugly. I think that, For people listening, it is disgusting the way that yeah, these so people me, so talk So let me just tell her. you. Yeah. So let me just tell you some of the things that happened to me. Mm. So I get I get bullied. 
right? Yeah, I get told I am called every single name in the book, Ugh. every possible terrible name. It's sick. Um, people they lie about me, you know, they say I'm profiting off of rape. Mm-hmm. Um, I have people sending open access records requests to all of the schools that I go to. So there's lawyers and different people um, requesting all the emails between me and any of the administrators of where I go and speak. They're sending, you know, fake messages to my booking agent trying to figure out my fees because they want to say like, oh, Brenda charges whatever. She's profiting off of rape. Wow. Um, I have um, people digging into my life, my background, my team, my family. Um, I heard that there was someone that had hired a private investigator to dig into my family. Um, I There's been just recently there was a thread taken off of Reddit that was calling for me to be raped. Um, I get death threats. I get rape threats. I get um, all of that, um, it, and it's constant. And it's because I say things like, I think your football team has a cultural issue, yeah. or I think your coach should be fired for enabling rape. You call you know, people out. I do. I, I do. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. if you do the right thing to push a positive, healthy culture and a safe culture, then I say, yay, good job. Yeah. And if you do something negative uh-huh. that I think is um, contributing mm. to a, a an unsafe culture, then I say something. Um, I hold people accountable and fans don't like that. And for some reason they think if I say something bad about their coach, that means I deserve to die. Mm. One thing I say a lot is, you know, if no one sheds light on what's being done in the darkness, it will never stop. And Brenda, you're doing that. And I'm so grateful for that. And I know that you're, I mean, that's part of why this is happening, but you're not, you're not backing down. And that's so, so admirable and powerful. I just don't know how you keep going. So, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you how I do that Please. and why, you know, I lived a double life for 16 years <laughs> and you know, the day that my story ran, I walked out of my prison of shame and silence Yeah. and that was a huge moment for me. I became one person. And so, you know, sometimes I, when I watch movies and like the guy that was like in prison, he's like, I'm not going back. You know what I mean? And he's like, you know, going to be crazy and shoot right. everybody up. He's not going back to prison. Mm-hmm. I kind of like, that's kind of in my spirit. Like I'm not going back. Like you, you're not going to silence me. I will never go back to being ashamed and silent ever. Never going back to that prison. So that's one thing. Mm-hmm. But then the thing too, is that, you know, I walked out of that prison of shame and silence. I realized that trauma is such a liar. Like your trauma, our trauma tells us that we're weak, that we're broken, that we're no good. You know, it tells us all these really negative things about ourselves. And there was one day when I just figured out, I was like, wait a minute, I've survived multiple sexual assaults in my life. How am I weak? Mm. How is it even possible? Like you surviving nothing doesn't take strength. Surviving something takes a measure of strength. Mm. And I've survived a lot of really traumatic things. And it was like, I'm not weak. Mm-hmm. And so when I figured out like how strong I am and when I figured out like, wow, survivors are some of the strongest people on the planet. Yes, they are. I just kind of owned that part of my superhero wow. within me. Yeah. And I was like, I'm mm. not weak. <laughs> yeah. And so I was like, so I survived a gang rape. So is your threats and your name calling really that big of a deal? No. It's like, whatever. Like, do you boo? Like, I don't <laughs> care. Like, say whatever you want to say about me. I'm who I am. I'm strong. Um, I'm a child of God. Yeah. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm out here living my life now. You're not going to silence me. Like there's no way. And so really what happens is I think that the more that they hate on me, the more I just dig my heels in the ground. Yeah, and I'm like, it's no. like a fire beneath you. I see. Yeah. That. I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. Sorry. Like continue to be irritated by me, but I'm not going anywhere and I'm not going to be silent. Like, like the usual 
And this is why survivors don't report, right? This is why survivors don't yes. come forward because of the backlash and it works. And so yeah. I do want to stand as that person that says like, you're not, you, you don't win. I win. Like, you're not going to beat me. This is not going to happen. Love will conquer hate, period, end of story. The truth matters. I'm going to stand here. There's no way I'm going anywhere. And mm-hmm. so I think that's, again, another thing, though, that I'm trying to model for other survivors, too. Yeah. Right? So oh, I don't get down in the me. dirt with my trolls. I watch that. I don't and get I down in like... the dirt with my trolls. <sighs> yeah, yeah. But I joke. I like, I just told do. William on Twitter yesterday oh. to come up from the basement. <laughs> you know, like, like wow. you know, William, William, your mom is calling you. I don't know if you heard her, but she wants you to come up from the basement. Um, You I know, or somebody's that, like, oh, I you're laugh. such a whore. And I was like, well, I'm technically a shoe whore, but thanks. Um, <laughs> You know, so there's just ways that I say things, you know, that are kind of funny yes. and kind of whatever. Yes. But I, some of the, I don't retweet all the trolls, but, you know, the thing is that yeah. people talk about, this thing of, oh, ignore the trolls, they'll go away. No, they don't. No. Uh, block them, mute them. Okay, yeah, block them, mute them. They just make new accounts, they come back. Yeah, they have babies. And <laughs> the thing is, is that if you're a survivor and you just, if I just ignore the trolls, right, that means I'm now dealing with them isolated by myself. But mm. if I take a troll and I retweet them or I or use them as educational, you know, whatever. So if somebody says Brenda's profiting off of rape and I'm like, okay, so you don't get paid to go to your job, yeah. right? Right. So, if I say something like that and I use it as an educational purpose and get people to think about these things, mm-hmm. right? Like what, why can't I be a paid speaker? Why is that? Why am I profiting off of rape? If mm-hmm. I'm a, a speaker speaking about my life experience and I get paid for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you retweet those things and you, you engage a, a, a community discussion, mm-hmm. but then also like, I'm not the only one fighting the trolls then. My supporters and my community are also pushing back on these trolls. Oh, yeah. And yes. I think it's important. You don't have to isolate yourself. It's okay Mm-hmm. It's okay to allow your community to support you. Mm-hmm. You don't have to just ignore your trolls and suffer alone in silence. Like allow people to support you, love on you, and push back on these people too. Don't get down in the dirt with them necessarily because you don't want to go down the rabbit hole with the right. troll. But you don't have to just ignore them either because yeah. that doesn't mean that they're just going to go away. That's really good. It's just like you found your voice and then you found it again and again. It's just like your voice just gets so much stronger and bigger to a point where you're able to enter into these kind of dialogues in such a like high level way. <laughs> it's just really amazing to watch. Thank you. But also I think it's true. Seen- you're helping other people find their voice too because you're modeling what that looks like to be strong in yourself, to believe in yourself and in your right. words and to not back down. Right, because these are hurtful things, right? Like people will say, like yeah, you know, you deserve to be to gang raped, or you, you know, they yes. they victim blame. They say horrible, terrible, terrible. hurtful things about me, yes. and you know, a lot of times I try to turn it into you know, an educational point or something. You know, one of the one of the big things was you know people in the beginning a couple of years ago when people would say like you know Brenda makes this much money and she's profiting off of rape and whatever and. You know, I had to start a discussion about, like, it's okay for me to be a paid speaker. And in the beginning, people would be like, okay, well, how much, like, money do you give back to charity? And, Mm -hmm. you know, how much does she charge? You know, they would have, people had these questions because they hadn't quite wrapped their brain around it because the discussion in in our society is, like, you're profiting off of rape. You can't get paid to share your story. And then, but then when I talk to people, like, you know, some of the most prolific profound speakers talk about their life story but we only get upset when it's a survivor right right but if i am right. um the woman from that movie wild right mm-hmm. she can write a book she can make a movie mm-hmm. absolutely right? and, yeah 
and it's her life story, but I can't. (laughs) And so as I started just having these conversations and just saying to people, like, I have a job, I get paid, this Mm -hmm. is what I do. I'm sharing my trauma. It's worth something. It's a value, whatever. As I was having these conversations and educating people and using my trolls, now today, (laughs) if somebody says something like that, people are like, dude, you don't get paid to go to your job. How's he crossing off the race? He has a service. He's a public speaker. It's a job. (laughs) Yes, I've definitely seen a shift in the conversation. And I think that's important, too, is that we educate the, the, you know, we educate the public on on these issues that, really are not issues to begin with, but these are things that people use to try to silence us and get us to go away. That's really good. Well, football season about to begin. I'm wondering what is your biggest challenge when you speak to athletes? What's, you know, what's the big thing you want them to walk away with when you speak to, let's say a football team? So I think the main thing I do, um, I think we're kind of an issue in our society of really talking about men as a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, especially I kind of noticed with our athletic teams, you know, they bring in the title line coordinator and a lawyer and all these things. And kind of the, the tone and the undercurrent of the conversation is we think you're going to commit rape or domestic violence. And so here's, what's going to happen to you. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of men just kind of shut down yeah. and they don't listen to that yeah. because the truth of the matter is it's about, you know, and, you know, and the research study varies, but I use a 90-10 philosophy where like, you know, about 10% of our men in our population are committing these types of crimes about 90% are not. Most men are not going to commit sexual violence. But within that 90% of these men, you know, quote unquote, good men, you have a lot of men who are complicit in their silence. They're complicit in their inaction. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, they're good guys. They don't know why it's their problem. Isn't that a women's issue? Isn't that a me too thing? And it's kind of like, okay, guys, here's the thing. If women alone could stop sexual violence and everything else, we would have already done it. We would have already taken care of it. We've been trying for decades. We can't do it alone. Mm-hmm. The 10% isn't going to help us. So who does that leave? That leaves the 90%. So the 90% of these good guys, they got to get their act together. They got to get involved, align themselves with women like me, so on and so forth. Um, so what I do is I go into these programs and I talk to the 90%. I don't yes. care about the 10%. I don't rehabilitate offenders. But I talk to the 90% of the good men and I ask them to identify, are you the 10% or the 90%? And if you're the 90%, here's the things that I need you to do in taking a stand. I need you to learn. I need you to get active. I need you to align yourselves with women like me. Um, And so I don't talk to them as the problem. I talk to them as a solution and I engage them as a solution and I try to inspire them to want to get involved and it's working. Um, Seeing thousands of athletes all across the country who, you know, care about these issues, but didn't realize it was even their issue until you walk them to that point where they're like, Oh, I'm the solution. I could do something. Mm. I could make this better. Mm. Um, I have family members and friends that I care about and, you know, I can make a difference. This does have something to do with me. All of us can make a difference. And so I do that with my teams and um, it's been really successful and I've had a lot of good responses. And I think, you know, the other thing for, for women is in general, you know, if these issues were math, like we're all in calculus. Mm-hmm. And a lot of our men are just learning to add and subtract. And so we really need to meet our men where they're at. Not all men understand these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, they haven't had any reason to understand these issues. And so, you know, I tell them, it's okay if you're adding and subtracting. Like, let's work together until, because I need you in calculus with the rest of us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, I just kind of, you know, give them permission to, to not know, but to learn, mm-hmm. but to be better, to hold themselves accountable, to hold each other accountable. You know, and like you said earlier about permission, you know, when one man takes a stand, he gives permission to another man and another man and another man. That's how you start a movement. And I think that's just kind of what I've done in sports. 
That's amazing. Just focusing a lot on issues like consent and, you know, not being a bystander and those kinds of things. Do you think that's the biggest piece that you're relaying or is it more like nuts yeah. and bolts? And- no, I think I think one thing I think is first, the first thing I do is just try to gain buy-in. Because I think if we don't have buy-in, I think if they don't understand why it's their issue, why they need to get involved, how they can make a difference, then you kind of have nothing, yeah. right? So you can teach about consent all you want. But if that guy's sitting in there thinking like, this isn't for me, I don't need to know this, then he's not listening to anything. Mm-hmm. But if you say to a young man, you know, you might know what consent is, but what about that guy sitting next to you? How could you make a difference in the world if you know what consent was and you could help someone else, mm-hmm. right? So then you're getting everybody in the room to like mm-hmm. yeah. be actively listening about, about consent. Mm-hmm. But I think consent, bystander, and manhood. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the three things that I really focus on. Mm-hmm. Um, because I also think that, you know, manhood is a huge issue. We need to care about our young men. I think that we socialize them in a way that is harmful for them. The Mm -hmm. fact that they're not allowed to cry or be vulnerable or have any other feelings, but anger and aggression and, Mm -hmm. you know, all those things we have to, we have to talk about those things too. Do you think athletics is just breeding ground for sexual assault as it stands? Uh, yeah, in a way I do, um, yeah. because, I mean, research shows that athletes are three times more likely to be involved in a Title IX case. Um, but here's the thing. I think what happens is that it's the way we socialize our athletes. Mm-hmm. So when a young man, you know, is in junior high and we identify or whatever age we identify that he has athletic ability, that's when that, that's what we focus on. We focus on his athletic ability. Mm-hmm. So then we have Uh, we start placing entitlement on this young man, right? And so let's say we have a high schooler who has great athletic ability and he's going to go D1 and play ball at a big school. And so now we're not really focused on him as a person. We're focused on him as an athlete. Mm -hmm. So let's say he shoves his girlfriend or something happens and we're like, oh, no, 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 let's not deal with it. Like, we don't want to ruin his chances to go D1. You know, and then he hits his girlfriend in college. Oh, no, we don't want to ruin his chances to go in the NFL. And then he gets to the NFL and he hits his wife on a video. And then everybody's like, we don't know what happened. The NFL has a problem. Shocking. Well, no. Uh, (laughs) High school has a problem. College had a problem. These attitudes and behaviors have been cultivated for a long time. And you've commoditized him. You've decided that he's just an athlete. So we haven't Mm -hmm. been talking about consent to healthy relationships. We haven't been trying to, you know, build him to to live his best life. We've been building him as an athlete. And so I think that, it, that that's a different dynamic that happens than other people because while other students might be talking about your lifelong goals and your educational goals and, you know, your life is, you know, a father and a mother and whatever, but we don't necessarily do with our athletes because we're only focused on them as a commodity mm. and elite bodies on a field or a court to help us win. Okay. And I think that's really sad. We're definitely failing our athletes in general. Yeah, that's a really good point. My last question, I know, for... We're going long here. So you're a mom of boys. I have three boys. Mary has one boy. We're all moms of boys. How do you take that then into your parenting? I know I've seen your sons on your Instagram and they're beautiful. And you guys are just the cutest little threesome that there ever could be. (laughs) I wondered, you know, my kids. Yes. My boys are 10, 8 and 4. And Mary's son is four. And so we're a little bit behind you on this road. And, and it's hard. I mean, my, my 10-year-old knows my story. 
And that's young for a lot of people. A lot of survivors think that's crazy. But he's just been along with me for that journey. Oh, and I, I know you're I know you don't. <laughs> and that's what I want you to talk yeah. about. I know you've done the same with your yeah. sons. And I would love for you to talk about that relationship and mothering your sons in a culture that we're in and even talking to your sons about your story. Yeah. So I actually hid my story from my sons mm-hmm. for as long as I could. Mm-hmm. And my oldest son, he's 26 now, but he was 17 before I told him. And I, again, only told him because out of desperation. So at that point, my son, he had dropped out of school. He got kicked off the football team. He was, he, he had ran away for a few months. We didn't know where he was. Mm. He had tried to commit suicide. Um, I basically just came to this moment where I was like, I'm either going to visit my son in prison or I'm going to be at his funeral. And I thought I need to tell him who I am and I need to tell him what happened to me. And I was terrified to tell him because I really thought that would be the end of our relationship. And we Mm -hmm. had a contentious relationship when he was growing up anyway, so we didn't really get along. Mm -hmm. But I sat with him in the car and I, you know, was saying, please don't be mad at me. Please don't be ashamed of me. I was crying. I felt so terrible. And I'm telling him what happened to me. And then he sat there and he kind of looked at me and he said, mom, why would I be ashamed of you? You didn't do anything wrong. Mm. And I, I wasn't expecting that at all. And it kind of threw me off guard. I was like, Oh, and then he said something that broke my heart. He said, so you mean all these years, it wasn't my fault. And that crushed me because I realized that, you know, all the times I couldn't get out of bed, the times I was yelling, the times I was angry, whatever it was that was going on in our lives, he was attributing to him and who he was and how he was acting or whatever he was doing. He was taking on his fault. And our children do that. We think that we can hide things from our children, but there's energy. And whether our children can articulate what's going on or not, they feel our energy. They know yeah. something's not right. And no matter what, a child will always make it their fault. It's the same way with divorce, right? We see it all the time. Kids are like, oh, that's my fault. Mom and dad divorced. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is about them that they do that, but they do it. Mm-hmm. And so I think what I learned from that was that I wish I would have been more honest. I wish I would have told them who I was and why I was the way that I was. Um, and I wish I would have done it at age appropriate levels and I would have done it their entire life. Mm-hmm. But what I want to say, too, is that it's never too late, right? At right. that moment, with me and my son in the car, mm-hmm. everything for him changed in that moment. He didn't just look at me as some oppositional, defiant parent who couldn't get together and, you know, was just a mess. But he thought, so you've been dealing with all this, but put yourself through nursing school, have been doing your very best to take care of me and my brothers and this the entire time. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah. And in, and in that moment, he saw me as a person who was just hurt and was doing the best that she could. And our relationship completely changed from that moment. So like that next day, my son went back to school. He got back on the basketball team in high school. He went on to a junior college and played basketball there. He has a daughter today. He's doing very well. Um, You know, there's still residual things and there's, you know, cycles we're still trying to break and, Mm -hmm. you know, trauma and whatever. But as a family, we're healing. My Mm -hmm. sons are my biggest fans. They love me. Um, we're healing, you know, God is also a God of redemption. He's a God of restoration. Mm-hmm. It's never too late. But I, there's nothing wrong with being honest with your children mm-hmm. in age appropriate ways, obviously. Yeah. But there's nothing wrong with letting your children know who you are and why you are the way that you are. Yeah. yeah. Because if they don't understand that, then they can't really know you. Yeah. And to say that these traumas don't affect us as parents, well, you're lying to yourself. Mm-hmm. It, it does, right? When you've mm-hmm. been sexually abused as a child, you're going to parent different than a parent who hasn't been sexually abused as a child. Yeah. So 
let's really be honest about, you know, what's going on um, with us. How is the shape is as parents? Um, and, and I think honesty helps our children. I really do. I think it does. And I wish I would have done it differently with my son. I did it, but now I have a testimony to share with other parents. Mm, wow. That's really great. I agree completely. And I just, I think that's really great. I think more parents need to hear that kind of stuff. I think we're, we're so afraid, you know, I think a lot of the shame that we still carry into our adulthood comes into our parenting and it, and it shuts us down from wanting to be authentic with our kids. It does. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because we want our kids to look at us a certain way. Right. And that was the thing for me. I hid my, all of my sexual trauma from my children because I wanted them to see me as in a certain way. Mm-hmm. I didn't want them to see me as damaged and broken and gross and disgusting. Cause you know, what happened to me was disgusting, but I'm not disgusting. Right. So, yep. you know, say it again for the ones I, in I, the back. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What happened to me was gross and was horrifying, disgusting, mm-hmm. but I'm not gross. I'm no. not horrifying. I'm not disgusting. Absolutely. And, so I think it's important for, um, I don't know what I was talking about, but yeah, it's important. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I just the, I think I carry, we carry our shame into our adulthood. So we don't want to be authentic. We don't want to be honest. We just want to be like the perfect parent, the perfect, we want to, you know, portray yes, on the outside. Our to our children. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. But our children know, you know, your children come from you. They sense things. Sure. They might not know what it is, yeah. but they know. And we think as parents, we think we're hiding things from our children. Yeah. You're we not. think we're protecting them <laughs> in the form of hiding it, right? We do. Yeah. We do. Yeah. We do. And, and you know, I thought I was hiding things from my children all those years, mm-hmm. but they knew something was wrong. You know, there were times when, you know, I couldn't get out of bed and so I'd call my mom and be like, you know, take the kids. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, to think that somehow they didn't know something was going on is just is kind of silly when I think about it now. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, you think that, you know, just put the kids in the bedroom and turn on the TV and they yeah. won't know that mom yeah. and dad are fighting or they won't hear the whispers or, you know, they won't sense the tension or, you know, all that yeah. stuff. And it's just it's not true. No, kids and I no. think our children, you know, they deserve a modicum of, of, of honesty to know, mm-hmm. you know, what they're living in and. And, and why we parent the way that we parent. I think just the whole thing of do what I said because I said it. You yeah. know what I mean? Like that uh-huh. only goes so far. I know it does. <laughs> that only goes so far. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny when you talk about, you know, hiding hiding things from your kids or, you know, you think that they don't know. My son, my 10-year-old, he was nine when he first heard my story. And in fact, I wasn't ready to tell him. He kept wanting to read my book, Hush, and I just wasn't ready. But he was at one of my speaking engagements. And I always, when I brought one of the kids with me to a speaking engagement, they'd be in the front row sitting with, you know, somebody from the college that was there. And they would have an iPad and put their headphones on. And as soon as I took the stage, they would watch a movie or play a game. Well, I'm on stage at a school in Kentucky. And suddenly, I look down on the front row as I'm going through my <gasps> intro and I see his headphones are off. So I'm speaking to about oh my 2,000 students and on stage, I say, Jude, put your headphones back on. <laughs> and, I would have been, I, oh. yeah, I would have been terrified. Yes, yes. And come yeah. to, at the end of it so I realized well this is what it is because he put him back on but I could tell like he had he had heard some of the hardest parts of my story and wow after as soon as I got off the stage we were going to my book table and he said you were abused and I was like oh my gosh wow. and I've talked to him about abuse a million times but just never the personal story you know and so I was like yeah. oh my gosh yeah. 
we'll talk about this as soon as my book signing's over. And like, it just became this whole thing. And I was so scared as to how he was going to take it. And it wasn't the way I had planned it in my mind of this beautiful time that we would have together. You know, I'd take him out to dinner. Yeah. We'd have drinks. Yeah. Just kidding. But <laughs> right. no, like, like well, it would be... different plans than you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but it was perfect because his response was just so precious and so caring. And he understood it way more than I ever thought he yeah. could have. And I I was glad that it ended up happening that way, but it's just funny. Yeah, how. my sons, um, my sons have never heard me speak. Mm-hmm. Um, they kind of know, you know, they, wow, they know I'm the really gist surprised. of my story. Yeah, I'm really. Yeah, no, they well. don't want to. They, um, mm. they read, they read articles, and I skip over the details of what happened to me. They, they know the general gist of what happened. They know their mom is a gang rape survivor, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but no, they don't know the details. They don't want to hear me speak. They don't. I don't think if I did a book, they'd read it. I think that they have just decided that that's not. Yeah something that they want to know or deal with and yeah. for me that's okay yeah. when they're ready it's fine if yeah. they don't want to that's fine too yeah. um mm-hmm. i think you know they already deal with they see like what people say to me oh. and how people treat me um okay. so you know they have their own stuff that they have to deal with and mm-hmm. not respond and not say anything and yeah. you know we have we have conversations about that um but that's hard for them you know yeah. it's hard for them to see their mom who you know, they see me behind the scenes So mm-hmm. when I'm going through some trauma or something, you know, and they're grown now. And the the beautiful thing is that, you know, now they're grown. There's times I can cry on their shoulder now, Aww. right? It's not just them to me, but yeah. it's times that I can lean on them. And that's been really amazing for me and our journey. But, you know, um, yeah, they haven't heard me speak. They, they don't, they have no so interest. And huh. I don't know if I could do it. I, yeah. I think about like, could I? could I do it in front of them? And I just, oh, that mm-hmm. sounds mm-hmm. terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't blame you. And that's kind yeah. of, that's kind of sweet how they're so incredibly supportive of you and of set the ex- expectation, everything that you're doing, but yet like they've reserved oh, yeah. certain things as like, that's a very personal private thing for you and are respecting you in that way. And maybe even respecting their own journey too. That's really yeah, that's cool. It was funny. My my younger son, he, so he's 25, and he was going out to a a bar or something. And I'm mm-hmm. always like, "Be safe, be you know, be yeah. careful." And he's yeah. like, "Mom, I'm wearing your set the expectation hat. Oh. I promise you, I'm not oh. doing anything bad." <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and I was like, "You better not disrespect my campaign." Yeah, really. <laughs> I'll yeah, find right. you. Yeah, or all your trolls will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he, he wears all my gear all the time and people ask him what it is and he's like, Aww. Yeah, that's my mom's campaign and he's awesome. everything. It's, it's pretty cool. It's pretty fun. Very cool. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, Brenda, I won't keep you any longer. This has been a really special podcast for me, especially. Um, thank you for your time and we are just we're behind you every step of the way and I'll keep responding thank to you. your trolls as much as I can. <laughs> No, you don't have to. You're fine. You don't need to do that. It's okay. <laughs> I don't recommend you engage with my trolls. <laughs> they're, they're a special breed. They sure yeah. are, and I know you got them. <laughs> yeah, awesome. yeah, yeah, yeah. We're good. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna. Yeah, I'm taking on my troll slayer role. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just trade out your cape for a different one. That's good. <laughs> right. Exactly. Aww. Exactly. So. Well, thank you. Well, thank you for hero. having me on. It was great to yes. talk to you and. Thank you for all the work you do. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. You're a hero to so many of us. So keep keep going. Keep speaking out. Keep bringing darkness to light. We're very proud of you. Thank you so much. <laughs>
Thank you so much for listening today. For more information on Brenda and her work, go to setthexpectation.com. And to find us online, to buy Nicole's books, to hear more about this healing journey, go to imonevoice.org or find us on Facebook.